0: Welcome to the Eggersafe Network podcast, where our mission is protecting the people
1: who feed the world.
2: This is Dr. Jewel Rana, and she's a commissioner with Virginia Department of Agriculture and Consumer Sciences. And we also have Dr. Tara Haskins. And she's a total farmer health director with the AgriSafe network. So she's new to AgriSafe as of like last May. Super happy to have her on board. Uh, We're growing our team here at AgriSafe. And Tara certainly complements our work. She's leading a lot of our mental health programming as well. So you have requests in those areas. Please reach out to Dr. Haskins. And finally, Dr. Joel Mazur is here with us today, and she's a professor at Southeast Center for Agricultural Health and Injury Prevention at University of Kentucky. We're really thrilled to have all three presenters. So I'm going to go ahead and move to our first presenter, which is Dr. Tara Haskins. So Tara, we're going to make youth presenter and go from there.
0: Thank you, Natalie. So my face here, just to say hi, everyone. And uh, we have a, a very uh, large pack show today, so I'm going to go ahead and sign off and and get started. So today I want to talk to you a little bit about cultural diversity and looking at agriculture through that cultural diversity lens. Um, To start off today, um, I just have some really basic demographic statistics coming off of the USDA 2017 data. And uh, I just kind of wanted to highlight this a little bit to take a look at the at the race demographics. Looking at all producers, we have a little over three million of producers in you know for encompassing all races. Um, and um, when we break down by race, um, there's some significant things to kind of take home and to remember. The reason I have Puerto Rico here as a separate entity is because you need to remember that the territory data is not included in the 50 states data. We have a lot of diversity in Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands and the Samoan Islands as well. And um, this number here represents the number of producers that are in Puerto Rico. So I just kind of wanted to get sort of a snapshot and I actually, in this data, I kind of pulled out the numbers for Um, those that would identify themselves as white producers to kind of take a look more at our producers of color. But one thing to remember, because you're not going to see the race designation of Hispanic, Latino or uh, Spanish origin is because the USDA did not give that choice for uh, race, but they did pull that data out by asking that question later, and many times people of Hispanic origin will identify themselves as white when asking to um, self-identify for race. So our Native American population, a little over 58,000, our Black African American producers, a little over 45,000. That used to be back in the 1920s around a million, so we've seen a significant decline over many, many, many years. And I think another important thing to recognize here is this brown, because we have more and more often people are starting to identify as more than one race. And I think that's really sort of an important take home. So here we see identification of Pacific Islander, we see um, Asian, uh, Native American, and um, as well as Black. But, but this is a very simplified view of race, because as I say, um, many people, will self-identify as more than one race. For example, in Puerto Rico, in their statistics of the little over 8,000 producers, a little over 7,000 identified themselves as white in race and black was 589. And so this is another sort of example of that with the 112 little over 112,000 Hispanic producers, um, which covered a little uh, a little over 86,000 farms. This is sort of some of the diversity of how they recognize themselves. So some may recognize they are Hispanic, Latino, Spanish origin, but maybe also as Native American. So um, that's important whenever we start talking about the topic of culture. Race, of course, is the physical characteristics and biology, but then ethnicity is more linked to sort of the cultural expression some of that uh, self-identification because the culture includes the customs, the social institutions, and importantly for mental health, the attitudes and belief systems um, about health. So these are just some social constructs that we look at to sort of help us to categorize and be able to talk about some of these topics. So what we're really talking about really is more of a way of life. Um, Madeline Leidinger, who is the, Um, uh, was the initial uh, nurse that brought about the word transcultural nursing. And uh, she did a lot of work and lived for two years in New Guinea and she came away with some really interesting uh, concepts and beliefs. And one that was so apparent to her was that Western world mental pathologies, in other words, the way that we categorize mental health in our Western world does not always translate and more than often doesn't translate in non-Western cultures. There are a lot of culture bound syndromes in Hispanic cultures and in um, Asian cultures that may be an emotional distress Um, expression of behavior, but may not fit the DSM criteria that we use when we try to put mental illness in this sort of recipe type um, presentation. There are also other types of healers, other than maybe what we may call traditional medicine or Western medicine. There are folk healers. There are folk remedies. And this includes not only diagnosis, but also interventions, which may include herbal Um, herbal uh, treatments. Um, More non-Western cultures have the belief that mental health and physical health are one in the same, and that would be sort of a concept of holism compared to the Western version is what we think of as more, has been more along the lines of mind-body dualism, meaning they're separate. And even though we're moving now, hopefully to a more holistic view of medicine, there's still some pieces of that remaining. Healthcare providers have sort of a training in sort of the Freudian approach. We have a lot of Um, psychotropic medications that are used for the treatment of mental illness. And sometimes this kind of lends itself to more of a medicalization of mental health treatment. As far as translating, um, uh, uh, handouts, flyers, information, we have to be really careful, not only to make sure that it's translated correctly, but sometimes exact word translations, such as maybe the word schizophrenia, translated into another culture may lend itself more to stigma. There may be a phrase that you could use that's more readily used in that culture um, that may be more, um, uh, that may destigmatize that sort of presentation. So getting input from those cultural communities as to what words should be used is going to be important. It's also important that even though somebody may have English as their second language, when someone becomes under crisis they're going to think in that primary language, they're going to want to communicate in that primary language. Um, and the other piece that I want to take home from this is that race and ethnicity matters a lot in treatment and risk factors, particularly with the medications that we use, because um, uh, our DNA, the way we process medications is all driven by that sort of internal chemical clock that our liver uses to uh, manu- to uh, use medications. And so sometimes dosages can be affected by race and ethnicity. Outcomes can be affected and side effects as well. So those are all important things to remember. I'm not going to go over all of the sort of mental health cultural views. I'm just going to highlight a couple and some of these Um, uh, cultures that I brought out. For Hispanic and Latino and Spanish origin groups, some things to remember is they have what's called those culture-bound syndromes, and these two at the bottom, susto and attack nervios, um, are two that are readily recognized in that community. Um, These symptoms may be more along the lines of somatic headaches, body aches, um, but may also have an emotional quality to it. And if sometimes these can be brought about by uh, stressful or traumatic events, or even like in the case of susto, that the belief is that the soul maybe has left the body during a dream. So understanding that perspective from that culture is very important. People in Hispanic cultures, they really like personalized uh, communications. They like small talk, and that's very different, and that's that personalismo, that's very different from Asian cultures where personal conversations are very taboo and they may be more standoffish. Um, Over in our Asian uh, cultures, many times what we see is that, um, and many people have already heard uh, that's yin and yang of health. And many times illness is seen as an imbalance of energy, hot, cold, hard, soft. And so those remedies may be sought after to sort of counterbalance what they may see the illness as a hot illness or as a cold illness. Um, There are a lot of herbal products that may be used in the Asian uh, population. And um, anytime we deal with uh, cultures that have folk healers or are using herbal products, we have to be very open to allow them a space to talk about it because Uh, Many times this may be shielded from Western healthcare providers, and even though an herbal product uh, is derived from a plant, it does have interaction properties with other medications that we give. And incorporating folk healers in our traditional medicine can align us a little bit closer to the culture and help them to gain trust. For African Americans, um, I think some significant things are number one, 60% believe that depression is a weakness and many of them because of strong spiritual beliefs may also internalize this as a punishment from God. I think it's very important to understand in African American and black uh, populations. There's a huge distrust distrust, uh, toward medical providers. There is a high rate of misdiagnosis of anxiety disorders, mood disorders, There seems to be an overdiagnosis of psychotic disorders and substance use disorders. And so it's easy to see how that distrust can sort of build over time if you're seeking treatment, but maybe the diagnosis and the treatment you're getting is not really fitting, um, you know, the presentation that you feel like. Um, you're trying to explain. Um, They also have significant metabolism and medication issues, and it takes a very astute and open provider to kind of work with someone um, that has uh, differences in their metabolism to kind of work with them on dosage so that we can get better compliance with some of our medications. And our Native American populations, um, this population tends to be very stoic, uh, they're very good with silence, which sometimes can make providers feel very uncomfortable or may project a persona of not understanding or not listening. Um, but some more significant things is um, if you look at my slide, the premature alcohol death rate in Native Americans is 552 percent greater than the, than the um, national uh population of premature alcohol death, extremely high rates of suicide and depression in both Native American and Alaskan populations. And so these are areas that we really need to make some headway on um, that are both predisposed by probably some of the metabolism of alcohol, but also um, some of the long histories of traumas that these populations um, uh, have endured you know, in their history. This is just a nice little uh, uh, handout kind of showing the different areas that race, ethnicity, and culture can influence mental health. And um, just to kind of give you some ideas of some culturally sensitive programs um, in Native American populations for the treatment of alcohol or substance use, there is documented use of things such as talking circles, uh, sweat lodges, um, uh, purification ceremonies, and those have greatly enhanced sometimes um, a successful treatment. Um, in our African-American population, I have a program that I just want to show you a quick video of. And um, let's see, uh, this is sort of a little introduction to something called the Confess Project.
1: So that's just a little taste of what the CONFESS
0: project is and they're expanding across the nation. Um, uh, This program is not targeting uh, uh, agricultural producers or agricultural communities, but they're there because Conway, Arkansas is definitely um, uh, kind of part of that uh, type of community. But I think it, it has some lessons maybe to be learned that could be extrapolated to our agricultural Communities. And then, of course, I just want to rehighlight something that um, Natalie shared was our virtual mental health first aid. This is designed for communities. It's a great opportunity, especially for communities of color, to get in on learning about first aid, becoming an advocate in your community, and um, and uh, you can uh, come to agrisafe.org and sign up for this. And this can be done virtually at home with the use of your computer. So I highly recommend this wonderful training. It's kind of like CPR for mental health. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Tara. And um... We're going to go ahead and move to our next presenter. I just want to remind folks, too, I didn't do it in the beginning. There's a lot of information in your handouts, um, in the handout box. If you click on that, you'll find a lot of the things that uh, the
1: presenters are referencing. So Dr. Mazer is next. Looks like you're ready to go. Okay, it looks like you're still
2: self-muted, so if you want to go ahead and unmute your mic.
3: There, sorry. Um, Today I've been asked to talk about um, uh, crisis prevention lines and and hotlines um, that are a critical point of care for uh, and help for farmers. So I'm gonna talk about essential elements of suicide prevention crisis lines and needs for farmers and farm families and give a case study of what's happening here in Kentucky. it may seem obvious that there is a crucial role for crisis call centers in delivering mental health service and getting uh, folks to the help they need. Uh, but in our work in Kentucky and and the work at the Southeast Center, um, we I found out a huge amount about call centers and 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 I want to share that with some of you because I think it's a it's a it's a very important piece of the puzzle. We're gonna talk about general call center functions and performance indicators. And then I'm gonna talk a little bit about the current projects um, that are going on in Kentucky um, for farmer mental health and particularly focusing on farmer suicide, which has gotten to be really um, a a very difficult problem in our state and in the states uh, for farmers, many suffering from depression and anxiety. Perhaps obvious crucial role it provides an initial point of contact, and but it can really make the difference between life and death. Many, many years ago, I was a hotline uh, person myself at a four county mental health jointer in upstate Pennsylvania. And sometimes in the middle of the night, late on Sunday night, you are the only person that is talking to a person in great need. So it really is crucial that we look at the role of the center of a crisis call center and the kind of quality service that includes proper call handling. We have to have a technical infrastructure as well to accommodate the call rates that are experienced at, in, in any state. The National Suicide Prevention Crisis Line and call centers uh, are well known to many of you, I am sure. Nationwide, there are hundred 70 call centers. I was surprised there were that few, to be honest with you, Um, but they are managed by state agencies. And there is a very interesting um, map that you can go to at the um, NSPL um, website where you can locate the centers in your state. For instance, in Kentucky, there are seven call, excuse me, six call centers that are distributed throughout the state, northeast, south, and west. Crisis centers answer calls for the lifeline for the suicide prevention crisis line, but they also often o- offer local helplines such as 211. If you're not familiar with 211, as I wasn't several months ago, um, 211 is a, a, a nationwide uh, system of local health and human services um, directories that are available 24/7. They're technically Uh, mostly managed by the United Way in all states, uh, but they also provide many, many services uh, that direct people to health and human services. Call centers also offer other resources, such as text chats or mobile services to connect with people who need assistance. Many of you may not be aware The FCC, the Federal Communications Commission has approved replacing the current 800 number for the National Suicide Prevention Crisis Line with a national 988 number. Uh, This is going to be huge. Uh, We have 911, we have 211, 411. When someone is really desperate or their family members are really desperate to have to go to an 800 number, call that number uh, adds time that can be really crucial in getting um, a life and death situation. The 988 number uh, conversion is anticipated to take probably up until 2022. Uh, they may do it sooner, but we don't know. That's their, their target date uh, for the nationwide uh, conversion from the 800 to the 988. Crisis centers also provide training and educational resources on suicide prevention and mental wellness, but they must have the technical infrastructure to accommodate call rates. And many states don't. Ours um, uh, has technical infrastructure, but it is in need of upgrading and we'll talk more about that later. Um, Here are general call center functions that really have to be considered when you're upgrading or evaluating Uh, the functionality of the call centers that may be available in your state or area. There's workforce management considerations. Um, These involve call forecasting, the number of people needed to handle call rates, staff scheduling, really management functions of the people working on the call center lines. Quality management, and we'll talk more about this later. This involves customer satisfaction and surveying. Call monitoring, which is of course always silent, um, and performance assessment and staff training. Um, thinking about what Tara was talking about, you know, are, are um, the call, the people on the other side of the call line answering those calls, are they culturally competent? Do they have the cultural awareness to understand um, that a, a farmer talking about, um, it's been raining for a month and I can't get my crops in, and what? what the real implications of that are for a farm family and for the family farm and the depression and anxiety that may result. So we need to have call those on the call centers that are culturally competent. That's a huge part of staff training and quality management. Technical management involves some of the um, te- telecommunications infrastructure, effective routing of calls and general call management um, tools. For example, you know the things that drive you nuts when you call your bank or somewhere else and you get this long menu of options. Well, that is called IVR, Interactive Voice Response Services, and it's a menu for self-service. The National Suicide Hotline does not provide that option on its infrastructure, um, but states can implement them. And that may be something we're considering for Kentucky. because right away, um, it may be that uh, you are just calling for nine, for 2-1-1 services. Uh, that's controversial. Of course, people do want to talk to a person. But I'm just giving an example of some of the technological uh, dimensions that are, that are considerations on call center uh, functions. Um, Metrics and reporting, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. That's obvious. And financial management. There are a wide range of costs associated with running a crisis call center, many of which are not evident um, to staff and funders, um, including some of the, the kinds of training we've been talking about. Training is always kind of an embedded hidden cost. Some key performance indicators for any call center are Service efficiency and the quality of service. Um, service indicators are accessibility and speed of service. Are calls blocked? Do calls get abandoned? Are you stuck on hold? Um, and and um, which is which is a very 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 bad thing. Uh, and the speed of service. Um, most calls are expected to be answered within 10 seconds. And long delays and queues result in Lack of service, people not thinking that they have confidence to get help at this service and so forth. Uh, efficiency indicators are contact handling. Sometimes the average handle time, how long does it take you to handle a call and really understand uh, the need of the caller? And worse yet, this on-hold time, on hold time um, metric um, is, is very concerning. Obviously, people need help immediate help if they're calling a hotline, a crisis hotline. They are in crisis. And then there's some re- resource utilization issues like staff, occupancy, availability, cost per call. These are some of the, the, the hidden costs that we're talking about. But the real the real crux of, of the matter for, in my view, are quality measures. Um, call handling processes. Are the callers, do they um, do they demonstrate and implement um, appropriate telephone etiquette? Um, a lot can, you, you, when you can't speak face to face and you're on the phone, you really have to be welcoming and caring. And that tone of voice, that etiquette, that welcoming um, mannerisms are really important. And then the knowledge and competency which I consider to be primarily, as Tara was saying, cultural competence and understanding people who are calling into your call line. And then there's resolution. Is there a first call resolution break that that shows that you're not helping people with the services they need? And and what is your transfer rate? Um, Are you really getting people to the help that they need? Um, There are currently no national service standards for crisis lines though other organizations, um, fire services, various health organizations, uh, and so forth, have standards that could be applicable. Service and efficiency, just to, to providing some context, considerations for serving the farm uh, population. Um, service and efficiency, technical and infrastructure issues. These are, what we've talked about, call lines, available services, 211, and about call centers centers and quality indicators. We also have a need for quality, personnel considerations, need for listening and truly hearing uh, callers. There's some interesting
1: research uh, done by the RAND Corporation uh, regarding interventions
3: that we call the four Cs, um, culture, cognition, conduct, and consequences, a complex constellation of considerations. We have to understand the culture of people we're dealing with. We have to understand how they think about various, um, um, how they think about stigma, how they think about asking for help. And then we have to understand conduct and consequences for the caller um, if someone is calling and they say, I'm thinking of killing myself, when you are uh, on a hotline as I was, the very first question you need to ask is, do you have access to the means of of um, um, for self-harm? Uh, do you have a gun? Do you have, and you really need to get that consideration, that information for the conduct and consequence of the caller immediately so that you can assess what your next steps are and how you need to to work with that person. Um, QPR training, assist training, mental health first aid training, these are all trainings that are going to be essential as we start dealing with increased mental health and um, suicide uh, prevention for the agricultural community. Implied in all this discussion of what is a, a, what is entailed in a, in a crisis line, some of the technical and personnel um, components uh, of crisis call centers, it implies the need also for social and political institutional support. There has to be a public will to care about, appreciate agriculture, and appreciate their needs. Uh, and how to get them assistance. And uh, we have understood in Kentucky that this is to be a complex network that we develop of state agencies, healthcare, mental health se- service providers, researchers, um, and po- the political will to solve problems. We feel like we have a unique situation this at this time in Kentucky with political support For dealing with these issues, and that collaborative efforts are needed. Uh, It's a complex problem that has many dimensions and needs many partners. I'm going to talk about very briefly our Kentucky story of hope and help. Um, The 2018 Suicide Prevention Task Force meeting, the 2019 legislative declaration of Farmer Suicide Prevention Day, the SFRAM. The Farm and Rancher Stress Assistance Network, which was the funding channel um, from the uh, 2018 Farm Bill, uh, was a sub-award to us last year from, AgriSafe, thank you. Um, The 2020 Kentucky Legislative Appropriation to the Kentucky Department of Behavioral Health and our current partnership. Prompted by our commodity stakeholder focus groups uh, that we do um, every year, Um, Dave Maples from the Cattlemen's Association pleaded with us for help responding to mental health concerns. He said, we get as many calls at Cattlemen's for mental health assistance and concern and farm families calling not knowing what to do as we do for cattle operations, commodity um, information and so, so forth. So in fall 2018, the Southeast Center convened this farmer suicide prevention task force with a wide range of healthcare providers, agencies, researchers um, to begin a plan to address the problem. Uh, The 2018 Farm Bill, as you may know, uh, provides for the first time ever funding for farmer mental health services. And this is huge, every farmer and every farm Uh, entity involved with agriculture knows what exactly what is in that Farm Bill. This is a huge acknowledgement and support for uh, developing and delivering mental health services to to the farming community. Uh, In 2019, thanks to the efforts of um, uh, Representative Brandon Reed and others in our Kentucky legislature, um, the Wednesday of uh, of National Farm Safety Week tomorrow, Uh, has been designated as Farmer Suicide Prevention Day in the state of Kentucky. Um, The SFRAM grant that we had, I don't know how to say that acronym, I'm sorry. Um, We are uh, tasked to build a community-based network uh, to have difficult conversations, and currently we are training in QPR, question, persuade, and respond. And as of August this year, we've trained 17 gatekeepers uh, for this QPR training, and we'll be rolling out each of those. Um, um, it's a wide range of people from ag credit to um, farmer um, commodity groups, um, universities, veterans groups. It's a very wide range of folks that typically talk to farmers uh, each day and uh, to whom the farmer may be, or farm family member may be disclosing important information. Uh, here's the legislative appropriation in 2020, uh, this past fall, uh, past spring, excuse me. Um, the Department of Behavioral Health shall coordinate with the Southeast Center and other entities to enhance awareness of the national suicide prevention lifeline in rural communities and to improve access to information on mental health. This is a half million dollar appropriation. Again, I want to Um, Shout out, Brandon Reed, who has been a leader for us um, in in this effort. Um, And there's been strong support from our Kentucky Department of Agriculture Farm and Ranch Safety Program. So the partnership proceeds. This is um, led by our Department of Behavioral Health. Um, We are working with the Suicide Prevention Hotline for infrastructure improvements from that appropriation. Um, About um, $200,000 of it is going to the Southeast Center and Western Kentucky University, who will be developing um, a farm cultural sensitivity training for call center workers and others who, I don't know why I can't finish my sentence on a PowerPoint, uh, who will be talking directly to farmers. And the Crisis Call Center Metrics Report put it in a nutshell, I think, that said, in working to fully comprehend crisis call center data and operations, funders and community stakeholders must demonstrate their commitment to maintaining sustainable and meaningful services to those in crises. Uh, I think that really says it for um, the importance of us all thinking more about that initial point of contact should someone use a call center as the initial uh, pathway that they use to reach out for help. Um, there are my references and I um, absolutely want to acknowledge um, our partners in all of this effort um, uh, that are shown there um, on this acknowledgement screen. Thank you. I appreciate your attention.
2: Thanks so much, Dr. Mazur. And, you know, um, we're really excited about what Kentucky is doing with this suicide prevention hotline. and. Um, hopeful that as states continue to look at solutions, they can be really models for other states. So um, thank you for sharing that. And um, we're gonna go ahead and move forward to um, our next presenter here, and that is Dr. Joel Brana. And I'm gonna go ahead and make her, oh, she's ready to go, she's fast.
1: <laughs> Good afternoon. Um- Thank you all for having me. I am Jewel Bernard, the commissioner of the Virginia Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. And so I will go ahead and start my presentation. All righty, very happy to be here today. And um, so I just thought maybe I would tell you a story of how um, as a commissioner of agriculture, uh, we have tried very hard to get a program on the ground. And I appreciate um, so much of what Tara and Joan have shared today, but I'll just kind of talk about the journey uh, that we've taken in Virginia in trying to address uh, farmer stress and mental health. And you know, the question is farmer stress and mental health worth addressing? And that was a question that, um, you know, we began to talk about about a year and a half ago. Um, and, you know, we looked at some of the the farm aid uh, data about farmers who had dialed into the crisis hotline that Joan spoke about, and um, trying to determine the number of farmers who died by suicide, you know, there are numbers that have been gleaned nationally. Um, but there, are right now, about 15 state departments of agriculture who are also embarking on this journey. Uh, I actually looked at Colorado because they presented at a national commissioners conference, and the idea came to mind about you know how could we bring some of their strategies back to Virginia? Uh, Joan talked about the 2018 Farm Bill appropriation and um, the formulation of FARSAN and the money, but for for us in Virginia. There was a lot of anecdotal data that made us understand that this is an issue that we needed to pay close attention to. And one of the things that's very frustrating is, uh, you know, people will ask, well, how many people in Virginia, how many farmers have actually died by suicide? And when you look at data from the chief uh, medical examiner's office from 2012 to 2016, 37 suicides were reported for farmers. And when you look at that number over those numbers of years, it just doesn't look like a lot. Uh, but truly our current data may not tell the full story. Um, and that's one of the thing that I think as, as departments of agriculture, we really need more good data. Uh, most of the data that we have is, is, is nationwide. And you look at, some nationwide surveys that have been conducted that found that suicide was the 10th leading cause of death, particularly in the Appala- Appalachian regions um, of the US. And according to the CDC, um, this could be attributed to the fact that some suicides are easily reported as accidents, uh, but there may be more farmers dying by suicide than reported. Uh, a lot of times we find that that farmers uh, Will try to have this reported as an accident because there's there's health health insurance that they want their families to participate in. So we really really need more good data, not across the nation only, but within our states about farmer suicide and the challenges with mental health. Um, again, for for us, it was it was very much anecdotal data. We we formed a farmer stress task force in Virginia. And if you look at the gentleman on the left, uh, his name is is Mr. Robert Mills. Uh, He is probably one of the most successful farmers in the state of Virginia. Um, I don't know if you all are aware of the Swisher Sweets Annual Farmer of the Year Award. It's kind of the Academy Award for farmers uh, across the nation. And he was the National Farmer of the Year in 2018, if that lets you know anything about him. He is a beef cattle farmer, uh, row crops. He's very active in Farm Bureau. He is. He speaks very well. He's just everything that's great about agriculture and about about farming. And I think after traveling and meet, seeing him at a meeting, and he he came up to me and he said, for the first time in my life, I don't even know if I'm going to have a farm to leave to my family. He said, my son's going to Virginia Tech. And I don't I don't know if I'm gonna have a farm for him. And I'm I've been stressed out. And he said I had to go talk to somebody about it. And he looked at me, he says, and you you need to do something about it. And it just struck me like a knife. And I think that's what made me move to action in coordinating a farmer stress task force, which is probably similar similar to what Joan shared that they did in Kentucky. And so uh, we gathered folks together and we wanted to educate people about this issue. Uh, We wanted to provide training and support. We also wanted to focus on the Farm Business Management Act uh, aspect of this because uh, farmer mental health is directly tied to their farm financials. And so we see that as kind of a partnering effort in terms of addressing the mental health, but also addressing the farm business management side of that and um, ultimately we hope to create a mental health resource network for Virginia farmers and you can see all of our partners uh, that we currently have at the table from our department of behavioral health to as I indicated farm bureau the state of Virginia cooperative extension and the land grant institutions and many others who have been critical partners in talking about how we would go about addressing this issue um, Joan mentioned the suicide prevention uh lifeline, and that's something that we wanted to create an image for and and put some branding around it um, we We first came out of the gate with with little business cards because uh many of you all know farmers uh are very proud individuals you don't ask them about their finances and they're not very open and willing always to talk about when they're struggling there's the You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. I can handle it. So we were trying to determine what what were some subtle ways that we could get the message out about the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, if needed. So we came up with a couple of ideas. The hand that you see uh, on this image is a dairy farmer in Virginia who who was very open about how he contemplated suicide, and he actually turned to Going back to school, he's a photographer, and he said he took this picture of his hand on one of his worst days, holding that that keychain that said hope. And I, we just had to use that kind of as our as our image in the state of Virginia for how we were going to try to promote this this lifeline for farmers who needed help. Um, as you can see, we tried keychains. We tried a lot of things as part of our public awareness, but uh, it began to kind of get some up taken in, in the media you saw articles coming out about what we were doing which is exactly what we wanted to do because we wanted people to be aware of these challenges that our farmers and our rural communities uh, have faced here in the state of Virginia um I am going to show the um it's just a small PSA at the end of the presentation uh, mention of mental health first aid, which has been just wonderful. One of the first things I said was that I was not going to start talking about it until I became certified. So I thought and got this mental health first aid certification, but extension, cooperative extension has been one of our most valuable partners here in Virginia with trying to get these resources out and to talk about this. So we were able to get about 15 or 16 extension agents trained, and we partnered with uh, the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health because they offer this training for free across the state of Virginia. And I'm really excited to hear about the virtual option, which is very, very exciting. And it makes it a lot easier for people to become trained and certified. And then of course, Extension and AgrAbility, they also are focusing a lot on farm safety, health and wellness with case studies and, and discussions and opportunities to talk about how do you, how do you hear our farmer uh, expresses stress. Um, Joan mentioned that you know they might not say they're stressed, but they may talk about the challenges they've had with getting their crops in or, or crop losses due to weather. Uh, some of those struggles, not being able to ever take a break. Dairy farmers are 365, twice a day, and you can imagine, you know, not ever having a break from that. But Agribility's gotten some great resources out there in the state of Virginia. Um, with the partnership of the land grant universities and the extension with resources to help farmers. Um, we're very excited uh, and, and so thankful for our partnership with Agrisafe because we were trying to figure out how to get more resources behind the work that we were doing. And uh, we got a portion of uh, the sub award as part of our last year's round of funding and um, we hired uh, an individual to help us kind of get everything going. He's a farmer himself and very excited and he understands this issue. Uh, I just spoke with him today and he said, uh, you talk about mental health with farmers, a lot of times when you bring that word mental health up, they don't even quite know what you mean. So we've, we've got some work to do and I can appreciate that because indeed we do. So i um, very grateful uh, to be able to have this opportunity to work with AgriSafe and to be able to move forward with what we're doing in Virginia. And I wanted to see if I could pull up this um, documentary uh, PSA that we have. And let's see, I clicked on it, but it didn't come open. Oh, there it goes. Looks like it's loading. I'm sorry, um, this is just our opportunity to try to uh, raise the level of awareness of this issue. But also, uh, we intend to make a full documentary COVID-19 has, has uh, interacted with that a little bit, but it's going to kind of change the story of what we end up producing just to educate people about how critical this issue is. Uh, and, and some of the issues that uh, are challenging our farmers today. So thank you so much for allowing me some time to speak.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Brunau. And um, there were some um, requests for the the uh, video, the link, the URL link. So if you have a way to uh, copy that and put that in the chat box, that would be great. We can also um, make sure to share that with folks uh, after the fact as, as well. So happy to get that that to people. Um, we have a few minutes left here before we wrap up, but there are some uh, questions that that have come in and I want to just give it a chance for um, Dr. Haskins just to share a little bit more about the Southern uh, Farm Stress Assistance Network uh, map so people can get an idea of the resources at least in the Southern region. So um, Tara, go ahead.
0: All right, Um, let's see. Do I I have- I just made you a better. Okay. So, So, All right, so this is um, the the newly amended uh, Southern Farm and Ranch Stress Assistance Network. Uh, The map that uh, Dr. Bronow showed you earlier had the uh, seven original partners. We are excited to let everyone know that we have grown to 25. We cover these 13 states and, of course, territories, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And all of these stars represent an organization of sometimes one and more times many experts and individuals in agriculture ex, uh, agricultural and experts in mental health that are doing this work in the southern region. Um, so we have a very strong network, we're very dedicated, we are actively involved in in the original projects from the 19 funded and and many soon up and coming projects. So if you if you have any uh, request to um, uh, to meet or contact any of our partners, just give us send me an email or send Natalie an email and I will connect you to who you need um, in your region. We have many. Uh, also, we have national partners such as Agribility. Um, uh, National Black Growers Council uh, roundtable strategies, and so uh, we have a variety of different partners that can address your needs or maybe um, collaborate with you on a project in your area.
2: Thanks, thanks, uh, Dr. Hoskins. I just uh, want to bring a question to folks, and this is somewhat related to that map. So if you want to, you can leave that up there. So um, just as a just so you all know, there are re- uh, other regions of the country that have stress assistance network as well. There's four different regions are running networks on stress assistance. Um, And one of the questions that came through, uh, I think is really timely with this, that folks are with the Veterans Farmer Veterans Coalition and they wanna know, um, they have a, a unique mission of serving a community that's considered high risk and when it comes to mental health, and they wanted to know what efforts are being made to help farmer veterans specifically and how their organization can get more involved. So this is a question from uh, folks from the Farmer Veteran Coalition, wanting to get more involved. Any ideas for them?
0: Um, well, we have several partners that I could connect you with that maybe have um, sort of that extended reach into veterans. Um, at Agrisafe, we, we've worked with veteran farmers to provide educational opportunities, but certainly agribility and um, some of our extension offices have programs that are specific to veteran needs. We know that the needs of veteran farmers are are sometimes unique. Uh, We recognize that, and um, we can connect you with whoever's in your area. Any other thoughts, Natalie? I I wanted to add for the
2: Veteran Farmer Initiative, Agrisafe has really invested in the last uh, 18 months programming for veteran farmers, and you can see a lot of that programming it has a strong mental health focus so i would definitely check out what we have in our learning lab uh, we want to make sure that doctors and nurses and others that care for veteran farmers really understand the unique nature of being a veteran and a farmer and especially as the, the mental health component so um, you're going to see uh, opportunities there to work with professionals as well so they can do a better uh, job of screening i see there's some questions that have come in um, looks like for dr braunau about the photo that she shared with the hand uh, some folks were wondering whether or not that photo with the hand is something that other states could use, and I'm thinking maybe the question is more about whether the um, the, the the cards and the in the the public messages that you sent if that's sort of in a toolkit that other states could follow. So, Dr. Bronow, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Sure, I'm I'm just absolutely delighted. I guess I didn't even <laughs> we're building this stuff, and I'm excited someone's interested in it. Um, we're happy to share. We we will end up having to redo the cards. I think it was it was uh, Joan that mentioned the nine eight eight number uh, will be coming out soon, but you know we're we're willing to share this information. Um, we don't have a toolkit to get uh, yet, but I'm happy to share anything any resource that we have that others are willing to use because I think we all need to work together to help uh, address this issue.
2: Great, thank you. And I think the best uh we'll go ahead and put um if you want to go ahead and put, Tara, your uh, email in the chat box, and that way folks that are interested in in getting sort of a toolkit um, opportunity, they can reach out to you and you can stay in touch with all of our partners. Um, Also, uh, Dr. Mazur has mentioned uh, in the uh, the chat, and we'll go ahead, uh, Nisha, if you can make that available to everybody, that anybody that um, has any questions about Kentucky QPR for farmers can go ahead and and contact Dr. Mazur on that. So there's lots of great resources. I um, want to look and see if there's any questions coming through that we haven't answered. Uh, as we're waiting for a few to come through I just want to also uh, let folks know that um, something that's pretty uh, important to us here at AgriSafe is to really get a, um, a in place of what we call an, consider a national hotline and um, I just want to kind of briefly show you what that that looks like so you can see, what the, what the uh, thought process is on that. So um, we have a lot of hotlines at the state level. We have the lifeline, which is the suicide prevention line. All of those are, are really important and uh, we certainly don't wanna do anything to take away calls from those lines. But the screen that I'm showing to you now with the uh, hotline concept that AgriSafe has developed, uh, this is really a new initiative where On a national basis we'd like to uh, see one line available that is sort of the catch-all the safety net so if it's after hours and some state hotlines aren't answering uh, that farmers have options where they can when they call they'll they'll talk to someone that can assess for suicide risk first so they're qualified to assess for that risk and if there's not a suicide risk then they can assess for other things like substance abuse depression anxiety and other So the the concept here is that there would be a unique line just for those in the ag space and that they'll have a a health professional who's qualified to assess for the most uh, severe crisis, which is a suicide risk. Um, So this is in a development phase here at AgriSafe. We've got lots of partners interested in this. We definitely want to complement other hotlines and regional hotlines in the country, not wanting to duplicate it. But if you're interested in working on this concept with us, uh, a national approach, please let us know because the next three or four months are going to be pretty intensive in terms of our discovery, making sure this is aligned appropriately. Okay, let me see if there's any questions that have come through. Um, Mental health training. again, the information about the mental health training, the best way to find that out is to go right to agrisafe.org and you're gonna see a flyer there that, um, that has the three dates for the virtual mental health training. And this is actually being done by instructors from Mississippi State Extension. They're, they have like 15 instructors trained. So that's how you're gonna find information about the mental health training. Um, go straight to our agrisafe.org. I have a site open now. Let's see if there's anything else. Um, I think we've got all of our questions covered. Do any of the panelists have any clo- uh, closing comments that you wanna share?
1: Nope. I, I just wanna say thank you, Natalie, for this, this platform, um, for the work that you've done and and Tara and your, your team. It's just been wonderful. And had I not met you, I don't think we would be at, to the point where we are in the state of Virginia.
2: Oh, thank you so much. We're really excited to share about uh, what folks are doing and and especially, you know, sometimes people don't realize that the departments of agriculture and in state are heavily invested in this so we've got to get all diverse partners on board.
0: Uh, So very happy to have folks. Um, I would just like like to say kudos to Dr on the 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 film development that looks so exciting i can't wait to see it i i want to be first on the list for the uh, film debut
1: (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much i feel like we're tripping our way through this thing but i really appreciate that and i will share that with uh, our partners at virginia state university who are assisting us with the production we're going to get it done
3: Natalie, I'd like to thank you and AgriSafe. One of the the key things is building up these networks and seeing what everyone else is doing and building on on the progress and successes and ideas, um, some of which are highly innovative, some of which just are basic foundational things that need to be in place. But I think if we all work together, it's going to be really going to have an impact on addressing these issues. So thanks for the opportunity.
2: Oh, thank you so much, and and your uh, agricultural center there, you know, taking the uh, lead in this space is so important. And um, you know, uh, we can't none of us have enough time in the day to to develop these things from scratch. So that's what really this is about. So we've got a treasure chest of resources for folks. If you haven't found what you need, please reach out. One last thing, I want to let you all know. I have on here a fact sheet that AgriSafe developed several years ago. It's, it's actually meant for The producer themselves uh, with some screening assessment and it's designed with them in mind so this is something that you can go ahead and print out and use and 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 download so hope folks take advantage of that and we have it in spanish (laughs) that's right we have it in spanish that's important we're investing more resources in spanish certainly there's a need for that so i just showed that thanks tara Mm Well, thank you, everybody. I hope you can uh, find time to join us the rest of the week with trainings. And if we can be of any assistance, please let us know. Again, thanks again for the great uh, panelists today. And everybody, have a great uh, rest of the
1: week. Bye now. Thank you. Bye bye. -bye. Thank Thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the AgriSafe Network podcast, where our mission is protecting the people who feed the world. You can learn more about the AgriSafe Network at agriSafe.org, and be sure to check out the Learning Lab and all of the excellent resources available on the site. You can also find us on Facebook or contact us anytime at info at